Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. So Daniel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to have you. Um, I am a big fan of, of both of your recent books, Spellbound and Molecule of More. Uh, really enjoyed both. So, so let, let's start with your background. Uh, tell us about what you do and what led you to write both of those incredible books. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a clinical professor at George Washington University. And um, what led me to write the books was just really interest. I, I found that there were so many interesting things related to the unconscious mind and also related to dopamine, and I wanted to share them. I wanted to write something that would resonate with lots and lots of people because by the time I started writing these books, I had really gone through a lot of my academic career, writing review articles, writing clinical trials, and it, it, it's interesting work, it's good work, but not very many people read these things, you know, maybe a couple dozen. So after years and years of writing things that only a tiny sliver of the population would be interested in, I wanted to write something that would be resonate more broadly. Well, when you say broadly, you know, given your credentials, you know, I'm reading Spellbound and, uh, and then all of a sudden I stumble upon you talking about practices like numerology, meditation, tarot cards, alchemy, and the magic, as you said. So again, given, given your, your credentials, uh, I was surprised to find that, but, but we'll, we'll come back to that. You know, at the highest level, the conscious and unconscious mind, let's start there. Walk us through that relationship. Most people really don't give very much credit to their unconscious mind. They kind of assume that they're the one in charge inside of their head, and nothing could be farther from the truth. If you take a moment to think about it, the conscious mind, the part of your brain that you have control over, is only a very tiny part of what goes on inside your head. And in fact, studies have shown that the unconscious mind engages in half a million times more processing um, from moment to moment compared to the conscious mind. So it, it's far more possible. And, and, and we can take a couple examples. Um, the unconscious mind is responsible for everything your brain does that is outside of your control. And so one thing that affects us every day very profoundly is emotion, whether we're happy, sad, irritable, angry, generous. These are things that determine a very large part of the quality of our life, how we treat other people, what we accomplish, and how satisfied we are with our day. And we have absolutely no control over it. It's the unconscious mind. Another thing is we spend our day, we spend our lives pursuing the things that we want. We pursue careers. We pursue relationships. We pursue material objects. But we don't get to decide what those things are. We have no control over the things we want. And sometimes we become aware that the things we want are actually incredibly destructive. We see this most clearly with people with substance use disorders. But many of us have had the experience of wanting a relationship with someone that we know is terrible for us or wanting a particular career and wishing we wanted something else because maybe what we're passionate about doesn't pay very much money or is impossible to break into. And we say, boy, if I could only be interested in this, my life would be so much easier and so much better, but we have no control over that. And, and, and so really we're very much at the mercy of our unconscious mind. And so I think it's worthwhile getting to know it better and learning how to develop a productive working relationship with it. Well, as you said, we've got no control. So I think the big question that everyone is asking themselves at this moment is, how do we get control of our unconscious mind? That's such a conscious mind thing to say. <laughs> and really, that's going to lead us in the wrong direction. Uh, it's not about gaining control over it. It's about forming a working relationship with it. And, and we really have to approach it as an equal. I, I don't know if you remember that old TV show, The Odd Couple. Of course. Uh, yeah. And, and in some ways, that's how it is. Uh, the conscious mind is like Felix Unger. Felix Unger always liked everything to be under his control, structured, organized, um, everything where it needs to be. And his roommate, whose name I'm blanking on right now, 
Felix and uh, oh god, Matthau. Yeah. Are you thinking the Walter Matthau Jack Lemmon movie, the first, the original, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, what's anyways? <laughs> he was this. He was this um, slob. Who, who was Felix really and Oscar? Him. Oscar, right? Oscar. Felix and Oscar. Oscar, that's it. Thank you. Oscar, Oscar was like the unconscious mind. Oscar is driven by instinct, and and I think instinct is another word for the unconscious mind that that we can get into more. And in the beginning, what Felix wanted to do was to control Oscar. Um, he wanted to make him neat, and, and he wanted him to do things the way that he thought was going to be most efficient and most effective. And he quickly learned. That did not work out. That was disastrous. And ultimately, what he learned is he had to make friends with Oscar. He had to accept that this man was different from him. He had to accept that this man had abilities that he lacked. And ultimately, when they were able to come together as friends, things got much better. And that's what we need to do with the unconscious mind. We need to understand it from its own perspective, which is extremely different from the conscious perspective. We need to appreciate its role in our lives, and then we need to ally with it. In terms of the research, where where is the science today about that relationship compared to say, you know, 10, 20 years ago? How has how has the research evolved? In my opinion, the most interesting things written about the unconscious mind were written by the analysts, particularly Carl Jung. I, I find his work absolutely fascinating. There is a lot of research on it, but the research is a little bit fragmented and it, it's very early. And that's because the brain has been called the most complex structure in the entire universe. And so studying it from a neuroscientific perspective is very much in its infancy. The tools that we have in biomedical science um, really are pretty primitive when it comes to the level of sophistication needed to understand the brain. But nevertheless, there is a lot of interesting things being done in that area. I think the most modern, from, from a modern perspective, the most interesting work has been done by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, I don't know if you had an opportunity to read his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, but um, I don't think he uses the terms conscious and unconscious, but he does talk about these these circuits in the brain, and some of them work very fast. They're very powerful. They're very efficient. These are the unconscious circuits. Other ones are very slow, very cumbersome, but they're extremely flexible. And these are the circuits that evolved most recently from an evolutionary perspective. And these are the conscious circuits, the one we have ones we have control over. And he says a lot of interesting things that in many ways reflect what Carl Jung was saying. And so I, I like how you compare the, the subconscious and unconscious. You talk about the odd couple, Felix and Oscar, and you use the language. It's, it's a working relationship. So coming back to that, that question, how do we ensure that we have a productive working relationship between the conscious and the unconscious? I think that it, it, it's a multi-step process. The first thing to get a good handle on is what exactly it is that the unconscious does. We spoke about emotion and we spoke about desire. Um, it, it does a lot of other things besides that. It gives us passion. It gives us mental energy. Um, it, it determines how we feel about other people. So, so that there's an enormous laundry list of things that it does. The first step is being familiar with that. The second step is just paying attention to your own unconscious in your own life. Be curious. Why am I experiencing this emotion right now? Why did I suddenly have this intense memory from my childhood? Uh, it was your unconscious mind that, that delivered that. Part of it erupted up to unconsciousness. It's good to start paying attention to the patterns and get a better sense of it. The third step is becoming more sophisticated about what the unconscious mind does. And that's achieved in what I think is a rather surprising way for modern people. And that's becoming familiar with the literature about the supernatural, fairy tales, myths, stories about magic. And I think that that's the last place we'd expect to find the most up-to-date information about the most sophisticated part of our human physiology 
But because the unconscious mind is so strange, it's powerful, it's amoral, it unites light and darkness, good and bad. Because it's so strange, so alien, and so powerful, traditionally its effects have been experienced as being caused by supernatural creatures, gods and goddesses, spirits and demons. And so if we go to those stories, stories that have been maintained and modified over the course of millennia, that's where we're going to find the most interesting, most sophisticated information about this part of our being. So what's an example of that? I think a good example of it is um, going back to the Greek myths and looking at the Greek gods. Um, These were personifications of forces that we find in the unconscious mind. Um, And they, they... they unite the opposites. These gods were breathtakingly beautiful, but they could also be horrifically ugly. They could bless mankind in miraculous ways, making human beings capable of things that seem godlike. At the same time, they could curse them and destroy their lives. And that's what our unconscious does. In very, very um, simple, almost trivial terms, uh, look at athletes. Sometimes Athletes improve their skills through practice and dedication. That's what their conscious mind does. But we know that their unconscious plays a big role as well. Sometimes an athlete will deliver an absolutely inspired performance, and we're like, wow, where did that come from? At other times, they will make mistakes that seem like things that even amateurs wouldn't do. This is the, the metaphorical god or goddess of victory in their unconscious mind, sometimes blessing them, sometimes cursing them. In terms of the magical, as I mentioned, I was surprised to see you talk about practices like numerology and tarot cards. C- can you talk a bit about those practices, the alchemy and the magic, as you say? I think that a lot of people are not very familiar with the magical traditions like the tarot and the numerology. And I think that there's very good reason for it. And that is that they appear to be kind of silly in this age of technology and science and rational, logical thought. Uh, It it seems as if uh, that's from a distant time and that they no longer have any relevance to our lives. And nothing could be farther from the truth. These are stories that are about our unconscious mind. And we can learn so much from them. Now, I, 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 I was very careful to stay away from the woo-woo aspect of them. Um, I, I think that what's fascinating about them, what's powerful about them, can be understood very easily within our scientific context uh, without the need to invoke um, actual supernatural things. Uh, I, I use the term supernatural metaphorically simply to uh, describe how it feels when the unconscious is activated. But but we can explain all of this in a scientific model and simply look at it as a story that emerged spontaneously from the human psyche and is a wonderful description of the dark areas of our mind that we're less familiar with. So you mentioned the woo-woo and you mentioned the rational. So, so what is rational when it comes to mysticism? Let's take a look at fairy tales, for example. Fairy tales are extremely powerful stories. And um, people who have read the um, Brothers Grimm version, for example, or or other more authentic versions, know that these are very different from the Disney adaptations that are all light and happiness and happy ever after. Uh, That fairy tales do have a happy ever after ending, but there's a lot of darkness and um, horrible things in there as well. So let's ask ourselves, where did fairy tales come from? Well, these are forms of folklore that came out of the oral tradition. And stories in the oral tradition are very different from stories that have been written down. Stories that are written down are made by one person. They come out of one person's psyche. Uh, There's often a lot of wonderful insight in there, but they can't compete with things from the oral tradition because those are crowdsourced um, crowdsourced stories. Somebody will come up with an idea, they'll make it into a story. Certain parts will resonate and certain parts will not. 
when they're subsequently retold, perhaps by different storytellers, the parts that worked will be kept, the parts that did not will be left out. And it's almost like evolution. It's almost like the way organisms evolve through natural selection. Over the course of centuries, the story becomes stronger and stronger, more and more a reflection of the forces that go on in the unconscious mind, because that's the aspects of the story that an audience is going to um, react to most powerfully. And so what the science is, is that we don't really believe that there are genies in magic lamps. Uh, But in fact, that does tell us something true about our brains. So the science is that we don't interpret these things as being metaphysical descriptions of the real world. We interpret them as being descriptions of our psychology, how we experience the world. On that note, what's the message to the person? You know, and I've done this. I, you know, I, I've I've done numerology. I think it's the life path number, and I've done a tarot card reading. Uh, what's the message to that person who's subscribes to numerology or, or does an occasional tarot card reading? What's the message on how that person should interpret that that data and lead to an actionable insight? Let's say you have a tarot card reading. And, you know, sometimes you have a tarot card reading and you're kind of like, eh, all right, that sounds interesting, but um, I don't know, I'm not feeling it. Other times you're like, oh my God, it's like you just read my mind, you saw right through me, and this makes so much sense. Uh, You've just learned something about yourself. Um, Tarot cards are miniature works of art. Um, and they are filled with mystical symbols. Now, these mystical symbols don't have metaphysical powers. Uh, they're not going to change the outcome of um, material things in the real world. But what they do have is they have the potential to stimulate archetypes in the unconscious mind and make us aware of things that had previously been hidden. And that's the power of it. And tarot card readers, they don't have any magical abilities, but they tend to be very intuitive. And what they are doing is without their knowledge, unconsciously, they're becoming aware of reactions that the querent, uh, the person who's getting the reading, is having to the cards and the symbols that they're viewing on the cards. And that's giving the reader these gut feelings about what's going on. So when you have a tarot card reading, you have this unconscious communication between the querent and the reader that is being set off by these very powerful symbols that stimulate the unconscious. You mentioned intuition and gut feelings. And and what role does our intuition play in all of this in the relationship between the subconscious, excuse me, the unconscious and the conscious? Intuition is a very powerful psychological function. I I think we've all had experiences of having a gut feeling about something, not knowing where it came from, but having absolute certainty that it's right. Often we have it about people. We meet someone and on the surface, it seems like there's nothing wrong with this person, but there's just something that makes us deeply uneasy. And and maybe later we might find out um, that there was a really good reason for that gut feeling. Gut feelings represent information processing that goes on outside of consciousness. And there have been tests that um, evaluate what gut feelings are good for and what they're not. And what they found is that gut feelings are capable of processing information in ways that are actually far more significant than the conscious mind is capable of. And reflecting this half million time advantage that the unconscious mind has Gut feelings are capable of giving us answers to questions that have too many variables for the conscious mind to handle. So here's an example. Um, Many of us might have had the experience of trying to choose the right college to attend. And, you know, there's a million different variables you have to think about. The location, the buildings, the dorm rooms, the cafeteria, the the gym, the grounds, a million things. It's too many to do. And so some of us will try to make lists, we'll try to make charts, we'll collect information, but ultimately we eventually get a gut feeling, this is the school that's right for me. Um, And that's because the unconscious mind is able to process all of those variables that are just too much for consciousness. 
you know, c- coming back to this this bigger idea of, of not being in control of the unconscious, I think of anxiety. And anxiety for many people is is driven by this fear of not being, you know, not being in control of of, of the of the, the future. Um, and so how do you think about that relationship between anxiety that seems like an epidemic there and the unconscious and conscious mind? I think the first thing we have to do is make a distinction between normal anxiety and pathological anxiety, th- things a psychiatrist would treat like a anxiety disorder. Pathological anxiety really represents the brain not functioning as it's supposed to. That can happen to the conscious mind. It can happen to the unconscious mind. The brain is made up of cells, just like the heart, lungs, liver, and, and it doesn't always function the way it's supposed to. When that happens, that's a medical illness, and we approach it with medical treatment. But let's talk about the other kind of anxiety, normal anxiety. And that would be the feeling of worrying, the feeling of nervousness that's commensurate with what we have to be worried about. What do we do with that? And I think that that's a perfect example of learning to live with a roommate who is not always the most pleasant person in the world. We, as as Felix Unger, um, we always want to be happy. You know, we don't want to be anxious. We, we don't want to be angry. We don't want to be irritable. We don't want to be envious and jealous. We don't want negative emotions in our head. But for some reason, our roommate is putting them there. And I think that what we want to do is to try to accept it and live with it rather than pushing it away. We can say, I'm having anxiety. I don't, I don't need to let anxiety overwhelm me. I don't need that to be my entire experience of the world, but nor do I need to push it away. Um, I can kind of let it do its thing and see what it's trying to tell me. If you had to, to generalize, how do you think we're doing as a society, as a culture, in terms of being able to successfully navigate that working relationship between between our unconscious and conscious minds? I don't think we're doing well. Uh, And the reason we're not doing well is for a wonderful reason. And that's because we have learned how to exploit the abilities of our conscious mind so powerfully. Uh, Science and technology are, are... are the flower of consciousness. That's that's the conscious mind at its best. And, and boy, is that powerful. Uh, and, and so now many of us living in developed nations, we don't worry about food so much anymore. Uh, we don't worry about shelter. We don't worry about the basic survival things uh, because of what we've done with science and technology. But we've developed unrealistic ideas of what it's capable of. Um, If I'm bored, I can pull out my cell phone and read something interesting. And so that gives me the idea that I never need to be bored. Uh, If I'm unhappy, uh, maybe I can take a pill or maybe I can watch a video that's going to cheer me up or maybe I can strap some electronic device to my mind. And so maybe I don't need to be unhappy. And, And I think that science and technology have kind of seduced us into the mistaking notion that they can provide everything that we need. And and that's absolutely not true because what we really need has nothing to do with science and technology. What we really need are things like friendship and love and meaning and art. What what we need are are magic moments in life uh, when we feel that we are living at, at, at the top of our existence. And these magic moments don't come from new big screen TVs. Uh, they don't come from the latest cell phone. They come out of the blue when we least expect it, and suddenly we realize what it feels like to be alive. And so we've got to come to realize the limitations of science and technology. It can give us wonderful things, but ultimately that's not what we want. Ultimately we want is that feeling of being alive. That's actually a great segue to dopamine. You know, you're bored, you pull out your cell phone, you get a dopamine hit. Uh, So let's go to dopamine. Give us a primer on dopamine. All right. So 
Most people think about dopamine as being the chemical of sex and drugs and rock and roll. It's what gives us that kick. It's what gives us pleasure. And that's a very, very big part of what dopamine does, but it's only a part. Dopamine has a much broader role, and that is to orient us to the future. And this really comes from the way that the brain divides three-dimensional space into really two domains. One is what's called the peripersonal, and that's the three-dimensional space within arm's reach. And things that are in the peripersonal space are things that we have, things that we can control, things that we can consume and use. They're things that we interact with in the here and now. Uh, because they're present here in space, and we interact with them now in the present moment. And there's a lot of brain chemicals that we use to process the here and now, things like serotonin, oxytocin, endorphin, endocannabinoid, that kind of thing, immediate experiences, relationships, and sensory experiences. Everything else, everything outside of arm's reach from the thing across the room to the other side of the universe is in the extrapersonal space. And the neurotransmitter our brain uses to process our interaction with things in the extrapersonal space is dopamine. Dopamine is about things that we don't have. Dopamine is about the future because if something is outside of arm's reach, if we want to interact with it, it's not going to be now. It might be a few seconds from now, or it could be decades from now, if it's something that we really have to work and plan. And so that's why we called the book The Molecule of More, because dopamine is all about the future. It's about maximizing the future and making the future better than it is today. And again, how would you score us on on our relationship with dopamine right now? Oh, terrible. <laughs> terrible, but maybe getting better. So tell, tell us why we're so terrible. It, it's once again because of all the power that science and technology gives us. Um, you know, whenever you're on your cell phone, you're not in the present moment. You're, you're kind of like being a hunter-gatherer. You're looking for valuable information. Maybe it's from your news feed. Maybe it's from a like somebody gave a post that you got uh, that's going to somehow make you more popular in the future. But really, so much what we do about technology uh, is about trying to get those dopaminergic hits of, wow, this might make my future better. And so we're less likely to be focused on the here and now. You know, the, the, you, you walk into a coffee shop and people are with their friends and they're all on their, their cell phones. They're not interacting. You're taking a walk, enjoying the fall leaves, intending to enjoy the fall leaves, uh, but your mind is wandering. Uh, you're not paying attention to the colors. You're thinking about that damn problem you need to solve at work tomorrow or uh, that, that problem you're having at home with your kids. So what's, what's countering this is the realization that we've gone too far with dopamine. We've gone too far with always trying to make the future better, and we need to spend a little bit more time in the present moment. And, and, and that's what mindfulness is all about. Mindfulness is the precise opposite of dopamine. It's being in the here and now, and in many ways, enjoying all of those dopaminergic efforts we've undertaken to make this moment so wonderful. You know, I've got so many great things, I should enjoy it. So beyond hurting our ability to, to focus and causing us to be distracted, what, what's the much, what, what's the bigger issue? Why this is so problematic for us? Yeah, it, it's problematic for us. It, dopamine, dopamine does wonderful things. Dopamine um, gives us desire. It gives us passion. It gives us energy and motivation. And it, it can be incredibly fulfilling to go out under the influence of dopamine and work for the things that we want and for the things that we need. The problem, though, is that at that point, we should enjoy it. Once we've worked so hard to get things that we want, whether it's a physical thing or it's a relationship or, or or it's an experience, we've got to come out of dopamine down into the here and now to enjoy that thing that we have. 
But the problem is that there is so much dopaminergic temptation in our society that we've lost the ability to do it. You know, for example, the guy who's best able to afford a beach house is least able to enjoy it. He, he, right? He's going to be out there in, in, on his beach and he's going to be answering email on his laptop. Um, and, and his family's going to be telling him, put that away and just enjoy yourself. And he's not going to be able to do it. And, and so it's some, some ways, like, like somebody's gotten muscle bound. Their muscles are so big, they can't even move their joints anymore. We've gotten so good at the future that we've lost our ability to be happy and fulfilled in the present. Well, is there a relationship between those who acquire something instantly or instant gratification? You know, if, I, if I'm bored, I go to the phone, I get the dopamine hit, uh, or I win the lottery and all of a sudden I'm wealthy versus someone who works extraordinarily hard over the course of time to acquire something or spends hours in the gym to become muscular. Can you talk about the relationship between instant gratification and say delayed gratification? Yeah. Yeah. So in some ways they're similar. Uh, they're about more, right? Uh, one guy's saying, I want more donuts. I want more pornography. I want more marijuana. The other guy's saying, I want more money, more prestige, more muscles. But as you point out, one person has a short-term outlook. The other person has a long-term outlook. They're both focused on the future. They're both focused on dopamine, but they're using different dopamine circuits. And so they're approaching the future in a different way. The person who is focused on instant gratification is being driven by a dopamine circuit deep within the brain. The technical term for it is called the mesolimbic circuit, but I think an easier word to understand, easier term, is the desire circuit because it makes us want stuff now. That's the circuit that goes off um, for instant gratification uh, when, when you grab a donut, when um, you um, are... Um, you're about to um, look at pornography or something like that. Now, the longer-term circuit uh, is called the mesocortical circuit. Starts in the same place, deep in the brain where dopamine is produced, but it comes up to the prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead. Uh, I call this the dopamine control circuit because it's the circuit that gives us control over our environment. This is a very recent evolutionary circuit, uh, the prefrontal cortex, and um, it allows us to plan. It allows us to use abstract concepts like math, language, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry. And um, a lot of times, the control dopamine circuit will be in opposition to the desire dopamine circuit. The desire circuit will say, I want that donut. And the control circuit will say, no, because uh, long-term, that's going to be bad for us. So complicated relationship. Sometimes they support one another. Uh, the control circuit helps the desire circuit achieve the things it wants long-term. Sometimes they oppose one another. So I think we all understand what eating too many donuts on a daily basis can do to our long-term health, but let's talk about porn for a moment. Why is porn so destructive? Porn is destructive for a number of reasons. Um, there's the societal reasons, of course, that, that are not related to psychology, but we, we should just mention that, um, that, that, that uh, people are being exploited uh, so that they can feed the appetites of porn. But, but from an individual, from the psychological, it taps into a very primitive, very powerful aspect of the human mind. And consequently, it can become addictive. And people can... Um, stop doing things that are healthy and productive because they're spending literally hours consuming pornography. The dopamine system is very liable to tolerance. And so you always have to keep hitting it harder and harder and harder if you're chasing those dopaminergic thrills. So people who consume pornography in a, in a pathological way may start out looking at very tame images and over time, they need more and more extreme depictions uh, until they're, they're, they're looking at things that are, are really very unhealthy, uh, looking at extreme depictions of exploitation and things like that. 
Another major problem with pornography is that it um, interferes with having healthy relationships. People who, who consume a lot of pornography often uh, can't function normal sexually. Um, men can't get erections. They can't uh, have orgasms. Women can't become sexually aroused or reach climax. And a lot of people lose interest in ordinary relationships when they have too much pornography. Um, there was an article about pornography in Japan uh, where it's a major problem and young people are, are no longer dating in many cases. And, and a young man said, um, I would much rather view pornography than go out with a woman because the pornography never asks anything of me and it never says no. Wow. Sad. Very sad. And I think it's going to be an increasing problem, you know, as we move from magazines to videos to now virtual reality, the pornography becomes more and more compelling. And I think it's going to become more and more dangerous. And I think the larger point, people are unable to, to function and enter into a real relationship. And you're going to have a lot of people who are single lonely and that can create lots of problems yes and, and and there's no human being in the world who can live up to the pornography fantasy uh, of somebody you know who, who just wants to meet your needs and so um too much pornography makes real relationships disappointing and so we'll segue to real relationships C can you talk about the keys to a successful long-lasting, healthy, romantic relationship. Relationships are what being human is all about. Um, relationships are, are the single most important thing in our lives. Um, human beings, compared to other animals, have very large brains, very large heads, uh, which come with advantages and disadvantages. Um, it's been hypothesized that the reason we have that uh, is because we need large brains to manage sophisticated social relationships. It's called the social brain theory. And, and so relationships are probably what our brains were designed for. Now, um, falling in love is probably one of the most intense, most enjoyable experiences we have over the course of our life. And that's a dopamine experience. Uh, that's an experience about, oh my God, the world is transformed and my life is never going to be the same again. Um, it, it, it's, almost, it's almost an experience of insanity when we are under the influence of passionate love. And, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The thing about passionate love is, though, that it doesn't last forever. On average, it lasts about 12 months. And then no matter what we do, it starts to fade. And a lot of people make the mistake of confusing the end of passionate love with the end of the relationship. And they say, oh my God, I've fallen out of love with this person. I need to find someone else. And they get onto something that's equivalent to what's called the hedonic treadmill. Uh, they're always going for another ride on that roller coaster of passionate love. That's not a recipe for happiness. A recipe for happiness is a long-term relationship and understanding that passionate love doesn't exactly fade, it transforms into something different. Something that's not as intense, but in some ways, something that's even better. And that's companionate love. Companionate love is not this insane intensity of passionate love. It's not a dopaminergic thrill of excitement and anticipation and, um, and, and passion. It's more of a here and now phenomenon of fulfillment, satisfaction, and contentment. It's just that, that deep feeling of being happy and content with someone whose life is intertwined with your own in a way that you trust them and you know that they've always got your back. And in some ways, that's a more enjoyable kind of love than the insanity of passionate love. And what role does sex play in all of this? So in some ways, sex recapitulates love um, in a very accelerated way. So with a relationship, we, we go from the dopaminergic passionate love to the here and now companionate love. With sex, we go from dopaminergic excitement and arousal 
Um, these are future-looking experiences to sexual climax, which occurs in the here and now. And, and dopamine is very active during the arousal phases of sex, and it shuts down during orgasm because orgasm has nothing to do with the future. Orgasm is just about the here and now. Some people can't do that. Some people can't do it. So, you know, there's a study of mind wandering and um, they, they checked in with people at random times of the day to find out if their minds were wandering, or if they were paying attention to what they were doing. That's uh, a whole other thing. Very, very interesting. But what, what they found was that people's minds were wandering about half the time, and it didn't matter what they were doing except for one activity in which people tended not to mind wander, and that was having sex. <laughs> it, it's not universal, though. There are some people who have such a pathological relationship with their dopamine system that they're not even in the present moment when they're having sex. They're fantasizing about being with somebody else or even doing some, something completely different, even during this incredibly intense experience in the here and now. You know, it reminds me of the hedonic treadmill, which you mentioned, and, and we've all, you know, the stereotype of you know, the, the, the master of the universe, someone's very successful and, you know, they're in midlife and all of a sudden, you know, they, they get divorced, maybe they get married again, maybe they buy fancy cars and then the same cycle happens again. They want, you know, they achieve more wealth or more fame, and another wife, and it's not exclusive to men. I think I, you just, I think you see it more in men than you do women. Uh, what's going on there? That's a great question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big question, and I know it's you know each individual is unique, but you tend to see that stereotype a, a lot. Not not a lot, but you see it play out in the news with you know pu public figures who are who are yeah very successful. Well, let's think about what's happening uh, during the midlife crisis when we're young. To large degree, we're, we're we're building our life. We're putting our life together. And uh, to a large degree, we're driven by fantasy. Um, when we're young, we, we all have these fantasies of what we're going to be when we establish ourselves. And they often tend to be a little bit grandiose, which is a good thing because it motivates us to do things that would otherwise probably be impossible. So for example, when I think about um, medical school and how hard that was and how awful it was in some ways, but, but I was motivated by a fantasy of what it was going to be like as a doctor. And that pushed me through it. When you hit midlife, those fantasies become more difficult to maintain. Um, you, you kind of say, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a billionaire entrepreneur. Um, maybe I'm not going to be, uh, you know, the most famous physician in town. Um, I, I, I guess I need to kind of come to terms with reality. And that's an opportunity for growth, but it's also an opportunity for doing some very self-destructive things. When we think about the midlife crisis, we tend to think about these perhaps not so mature things like buying a sports car, having an affair, finding a new wife those kinds of things. And people do that for sure. But studies have also found that the midlife crisis is a time of increasing transcendence. Um, and that actually it can be a time when we grow and we grow into something really wonderful. And that is a transcendent human being. Well, on a personal note, I turned 48 and we have a minivan, which I love. Uh, <laughs> I've been happily married for 13 years. We've been, been together for 15. Uh, but but I just had to ask because you, you, you see it quite frequently. Um, you know, and so coming back to, to dopamine, you know, obviously in managing dopamine, technology is a big one, our relationship with our cell phone. What else should we, you know, obviously porn, you know, makes a void point, porn, obviously, and that's very problematic, I think, for the younger generation right now. What else should we avoid? And on the flip side, what should we enjoy, do more frequently to help us better manage dopamine in a way that makes it more productive? You know, um, dopamine pleasures like eating Twinkies, 
healthier pleasures are, are like eating healthy food. It's harder, and we've got to make an effort to do it. We, we can't always eat Twinkies. And so I think that the first step is just recognizing when it is that you're chasing hollow dopaminergic pleasures and uh, maybe just catch yourself and stop and say, let me do something a little bit harder, but maybe a little bit more fulfilling. So in the evening, instead of being on your cell phone, you know, watching TikTok videos, um, have a conversation um, with your partner or maybe read a novel. Instead of reading short articles uh, on the internet, instead of reading, you know, tweets of people expressing outrage, um, read a novel. Uh, It's a lot harder, but it's a lot more fulfilling. So I think that we kind of all know that we engage in these dopaminergic indulgences that aren't good for us. Maybe what we don't know is how much better our lives could be if we ate healthier food, metaphorically, so to speak. Um, And and, you know, one of the things I've noticed in my practice that really makes me incredibly happy is all of these people doing uh, dry January. They're not drinking alcohol during January. And everybody says the same thing. I never imagined how good that could feel. I have so much more energy um, and, and I feel better in every way. And I think it would be good if people could also designate a month in which they minimize those dopaminergic pleasures, try the harder things of books and people and and maybe crafts, knitting, woodworking, just to see how good that can feel. In terms of other things that can make us feel good, what about volunteering? What about uh, donating, you know, money, uh, being part of something that has meaning to you. Can you talk about some some other vehicles, if you will, for achieving a dopamine hit that are, are, are for the greater good? I think that um, if you send money to a good cause, that's going to give you a dopamine hit and um, be, because it's going to stimulate your imagination. Um, you know, what's going to change as a result of the work of this organization that I donated to. Uh, That's going to lead to a better future. That's going to be dopaminergic. And it's a good thing that you did by sending that money, but I don't think that dopaminergic hit you're getting is particularly nutritious from a psychological point of view. You compare that to heading down to your local soup kitchen, handing out meals, and then washing up the dishes afterwards that's a here and now experience. That's not dopaminergic at all. You are engaging one-on-one with the people that you are helping to feed. You're using your hands, you're using your senses in the present moment. That is very nutritional from a psychological point of view. So, um, you know, there's good things we do, there's bad things we do, and dopamine in here and now play a role in both. And, And so I think that we have to pay attention to which is which and make deliberate decisions to choose here and now more. I forget the source, but what about making a donation, but also to your point, donation is wonderful, but seeing it through and actually being physically present so you can see the benefit of that donation in real life, whether that's helping an individual or donating to the soup kitchen, then going to the soup kitchen and seeing it, that that is more effective. Yeah, that's right. Giving the donation is going to help the people you're intending to help, and that's wonderful, but it's not going to help you. Going to the soup kitchen and helping people one-on-one is going to help both of you. And and there have been scientific studies that show that uh, people who volunteer their time, not just writing checks, but actually their time, um, are happier Uh, they're less vulnerable to depression, and their physical health is even better. So uh, there's enormous benefits to actually helping people on a one-on-one basis. And of all the studies and research that went into both of these books, whether it's it's a study you conducted or something you read about in a journal, what was the most surprising to you? I think that the most surprising to me was the discovery. uh, I didn't discover this, but, but from the research I did reading other people's work, about how 
how broad dopamine is in terms of influence in our life. I, I started this book wanting to write about sex and drugs and rock and roll I, because, of course, that was what was going to sell. That's what was going to be fun to read about. And it blew my mind to find out that dopamine plays a much larger role and, and that all of these things can be tied together through the thread of more maximizing future resources. That, that dopamine doesn't play just a role in schizophrenia. It also plays a role in addictions and ADHD and creativity and politics and immigration and um, culture and all kinds of things. That was the most surprising thing. In terms of connecting the dots between the unconscious, the conscious and dopamine, how, how, do, how do we do that? How do we connect all of those dots in an effort to create a more meaningful life. I think if we want to pull all of this together, the best place to start is with the dopamine control circuit, the mesocortical circuit, the one that involves the prefrontal cortex. This is the circuit that's most closely associated with consciousness, with the ego. It's the circuit that we use when we plan, when we deliberate, evaluate, and judge. And it's what sets us apart from all of the other animals on this planet and has given us the ability to master our environment and, and, and next the entire solar system. But in some ways, the, this circuit is so powerful, it's at risk of destroying us. So we have all kinds of stories about power that destroys the person who tries to wield it because that person wasn't ready yet. We have stories about people having to make sacrifices, about people having to show discipline to get themselves in a place where they're ready to pick up that magic sword or to use that magic wand. And we have this magic wand of dopamine, this magic wand that's given us technologies, automobiles, airplanes, computers, cell phones. But these are things that threaten to destroy us because we don't seem to have the discipline to use them responsibly. And I think that in order to get that discipline, we're going to need to reconnect with our unconscious mind to make us realize that dopamine is not the only good thing in this world. In fact, it's not even the best thing in the world. That the very best thing are these feelings of being alive, of connecting with other people, and having meaningful relationships. And so in terms of takeaways, and that's very well said, sounds like we need to do a better job of man managing our relationship with technology. We need to develop some sort of mindfulness or meditation practice. We need to be curious, we need to be aware, we need to focus on real, meaningful, in-person relationships. What, what else? What, what should we be focused on? I think that we should also have a little bit of humility about our own minds and not think that we are the masters up there and that we can dictate whatever we want. Um, we should pay attention to the other forces that determine what our psychological experiences are. Try to get to know them a little bit better, just as we might try to get to know another person that we're interested in making friends with. Fascinating. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been great to have you. And I have to give a shout out to our CFO, Doug, who was like, you have to have Dan Lieberman on the show because the molecule of more was so good. And so I picked it up and then I, I read molecule of more and it's spellbound and so, so glad this happened. And again, thank you so much for all the incredible work you do. Well, thank you.